0: Hello everyone. Today I will be talking with Dr. Katie Davis. Dr. Davis is an associate professor at the University of Washington and director of the UW Digital Youth Lab. For nearly 20 years, she has been researching the impact of digital technologies on young people's learning, development, and well-being. In her latest book, Technology's Child, Digital Media's Role in the Ages and Stages of Growing Up, Dr. Davis brings clarity to what we know about technology's role in child development and provides guidance on how to help children of all ages make the most of their digital experiences. Dr. Davis began her professional life as an elementary school teacher in Bermuda, an experience that inspired her to dedicate her career to understanding and supporting children's learning and development. Both of her parents are Bermudian, with family ties extending back multiple generations. Her son, Oliver, was born in Bermuda, making him a 13th generation Bermudian on the Davis side of the family. Listeners can sign up for her Technologies Child newsletter and receive a free sample chapter of the book by going to her website, which is listed in the show notes. In today's episode, we discuss the good enough digital parent and what that means, how we as parents can help children and teens navigate the digital media world, digital media legislation and what that might look like, and much more. Let's dive in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode. This podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hello everyone. Today we have Dr. Katie Davis here on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much. This is great to be with you. Yes, as I was just mentioning to you before we we started chatting here, is I have So many questions I want to answer, (laughs) want answered today. So we'll see what we get to. But if you can just start by talking to us about the research that you do and what you hope it will accomplish.
1: Sure. So I have been researching the role of technology in young people's lives for almost twenty years now. Before that, I started my career as an elementary school teacher and I was a fourth grade teacher and I was just fascinated. This was in the early to mid 2000s. And I just was fascinated by how quickly technology was being introduced into my classroom and how central it was becoming to kids' lives, both inside the classroom and outside of the classroom. And so I just wanted to understand what are the implications for how kids are developing and learning and just how they are in this world. And so I decided to go back to grad school and study these questions. And so I've really been studying them ever since. And as you know, technology moves so quickly and it changes constantly. And so the questions have remained the same, but the technology is different. And so the answers are always changing and which it can be, it's, it's very exciting, but it can also be really tricky for research. But in my research, I'm really trying to provide a balanced view, especially in light of so many of the news headlines that we come across. And really, this has been for the whole time where I've been researching, the headlines are often very alarmist, saying technology is the worst thing, or sometimes it's the best thing. And it's really hard for parents and anyone who has kids in their lives to know what to do with that. And so my research, I'm really trying to figure out, well, when is technology good for kids and their development? When is it not so good? And also for which kinds of kids? So trying to figure out that interaction between specific individual children and the technologies they're using and the context of their technology use.
0: Yeah. So when I read your book, Technology's Child, so this book is all about the digital media's role in the ages and stages of of kids growing up. And I, you know, I went into it thinking, oh, I hate social media. Social media is so bad. I'm never letting my kids on social media. We are the parents that do have very limited screens. I mean, our kids will watch TV shows like Bluey or, or we really do a lot of movies and things like that. But iPads are reserved for plane trips only, which is once a year. And I went into reading that book as somebody who was very anti-technology. As somebody who grew up in the 80s, I'm like, Please teleport me back to the eighties. Like I'm, I'm so stuck in that mindset, and I felt like this book kind of helped me to break out of that a little bit and and say, okay, I, you need to be thinking about this from a different direction. And you know, technology is not going anywhere. How can I introduce technology into my children's lives by making it useful and positive? you know, rather than always focusing on on negative aspects of it. And what does that look like? And so throughout the book, you know, I kept having these, you know, aha moments where I was like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about two things. So you mentioned a story inside of the book where you talked about the endless alphabet app and, and your child. And then if you can dive deeper, deeper into all of this and then talk about what it means to play with loose parts versus digital play and how you think that can play a role into you know the life of an everyday, everyday child that needs to learn how to use technology in a way that might be helpful for, for them.
1: Sure. I have a son who is now six and a half, but as I was writing this book, a lot of it during the pandemic, he was three, four, and five. It took me a while to write because it's not easy to write a book during a pandemic when your three-year-old is bouncing off the walls. But I had a lot of opportunity to observe Oliver and how he was engaging with different apps on his tablet. And one of them is this Endless Alphabet app. And I use this as, well, I I use it as an example of the learning opportunities when it comes to early literacy development, both the opportunities and the limitations. And so with this particular app, Endless Alphabet At first blush, you know, I actually found it because there were some mom influencers on YouTube who were saying this is the best app ever. So I downloaded it for a very long, long plane ride. We were living in Berlin at the time, so we had a very long plane ride ahead of us and i thought this is great you know all of it, you, you you get to pick a word and there are some really great words like sophisticated or generous you know good to, i thought this is a great way to develop his vocabulary what happens is you see the word displayed on the tablet and then automatically the letters disperse and all that's left are these Outlines of the letters, and what you have to do is take your finger and and move the letter that has dispersed so that it aligns with the grayed out outline. And as you're moving it, the little letter kind of jumps around and says its name, like ah 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 for a or b b b for b. I thought, oh, this is great. You know, he's going to really learn. You know that. The letters and the sounds that they make and how they fit together in a word. And when he first started to play it, I noticed that actually what he was more interested in was just these the the funny little moves that the letters would make. And after when he put all of the letters onto their, their respective positions there would be, you know, this little video that, that featuring funny little monsters, and he thought that was the best thing ever. So it was very clear that he was focusing on just trying to get to the video and not really paying attention to actually the letter sounds themselves. And so I use this as an example of, you know, you can have ostensibly an educational app or whatever digital experience there is, and it could have some really good potential, but if there's a whole bunch of bells and whistles that are overlaid on top to grab your child's attention, then often, especially for young kids who have limited information processing capabilities and you know their attention limits are not that long, it actually can be quite distracting for them to have all of those fun things that are kind of overshadowing the underlying educational aspect. And so I just use that in the book. As an example of you know, trying to find as much as possible edu- educational experiences with digital technologies, where the educational part is front and center, not to such such an extent where it can become boring for the child, but really trying not to overlay everything with all these bells and whistles. That really, what they are there for is to co-opt children's attention. But I also talk about this app. You know, as Oliver got a little bit older and he was. He was readier, really, to learn about the letters of the alphabet and how they come together to form words. When he was actually developmentally readier, then he started to get a lot out of this app. And so that also is a great example of the importance of paying attention to where your child is developmentally and how that that the stage they are developmentally is going to interact with whatever technology they're using. And so something that w- really doesn't work for them at age three might actually start to click and work at four or four and a half.
0: Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Is there, I would like to ask you what you personally look for when you are examining, you know, a new app for your child. What are some of the things that you look for that you want to make sure are included within that that piece of digital media before your child starts to use it?
1: Right. So, actually, you know, this is this is what I try and do is I I ask myself two questions, and these are two questions that I introduce early on in the book and they really apply to Kids, no matter how old they are or how young they are, whatever age or stage they are of development, you can ask yourself two questions to help you figure out whether or not a particular experience or app or whatever it is, is going to be right for your child. So for me and Oliver, I'm asking... Is this experience self-directed? And by self-directed, I mean technology experiences where Oliver is actually in the driver's seat of his technology experience, where he maintains his sense of agency and direction and he's calling the shots in the experience rather than just being led from one thing to the next. And there's so many examples of technology that employs certain design features, which are called dark patterns, to really keep you engaged. So if you think about the most obvious example is the autoplay feature in Netflix or YouTube or other streaming services where you don't have to do anything if you want to just watch the next one. It's going to play for you automatically. And that feature and features like that are really there just to keep you engaged. And that kind of undercuts your ability to stay in control and in the you're the driver's seat of your technology experience. So as much as possible, I seek out um, experiences for Oliver that allow him to create something new, to you know, learn something new and in some way direct the experience. Now, I should say the caveat to that is I don't always do that. So I am a very busy parent. I get tired by the end of the day. And sometimes I just turn on the TV and we both kind of veg out. And I wouldn't say that we are engaging in a self-directed technology experience, but we're kind of recharging, spending some time together. And I think there's definitely a place for that in families. But Overall, on balance, I would like Oliver's technology experiences to be those where he is calling the shots. He is experiencing agency and autonomy, and and there are opportunities for him to explore his own creativity. So that's one core question. Is this experience self-directed? Is it going to allow for self-directed experiences for my child? The second question is, is this experience or does it have the potential to be community supported? And by that, I mean, what sorts of supports are surrounding the technology experience? And so if you think about young kids, really the supports that come around the technology experience are really mostly coming from parents. So the parents are choosing what sorts of apps they get access to, how long they get to watch a TV show. And things like that. And those decisions are going to look different for different families because families are different, kids are different, and that's totally fine. But thinking about what kinds of supports am I providing as a parent around this technology experience. So if it's a learning app, is there a way that I can extend that learning outside of the app? You know, if I'm learning about the alphabet, maybe I can start pointing out words or objects around the house that start with different letters and and in that way extend the experience. For kids who are getting older and into their teen years, oftentimes the support is not just coming from parents and friends surrounding the experience but also within the experience itself so teens are and and actually older kids spending time on online platforms whether it's social media or gaming platforms and sometimes the communities that they're interacting with are very positive and supportive especially you know when teens are exploring their identity they can really find affirmation in online communities But sometimes they aren't so great. Sometimes communities can be pretty toxic. As we, most of us know, I'm sure, social media, certain pockets of social media are better than others. And so really trying to plug in and tune in to... What kind of community support is my child experiencing or not experiencing in their online interactions? So it's really those two questions that I use every day and that I weave throughout the book to really figure out and, and focus the research, which can be very intimidating because there's a lot of it. There's It's quite complex. It, it kind of varies from child to child and context to context. But I think if you use those two questions, is it self-directed, is it community supported as a North Star, you can really go a long way in making very effective decisions around technology use for your particular child.
0: Yeah. And as you're talking, I'm thinking to myself how hard it must be to try to differentiate between, I feel like there's two camps almost where you, you have digital media as a whole, which would include things like perhaps an iPad with some, you know, what they call, you know, educational apps or painting or what have you on the iPad and and television and perhaps like listening to podcasts, things like that. And then you have like the social media bus bucket, which includes things like TikTok and Instagram and YouTube and, and things like that. Do you, do you find that it's kind of separated like that? Do you find that your research is, it differs pretty vastly between those two buckets or, or do you think there's lots of overlap?
1: Does that well, make, question make sense? Oh Yeah, absolutely. Well, the tricky thing is, and the, the thing that I find so frustrating both as a researcher and as a parent, is that you can have, you can hold in your hand something that has access to amazing learning opportunities but also can be such a time suck or it can have ac- it can provide access to really toxic experiences and even within one particular platform so you know if you think about kids and gaming minecraft is a i think a good example where it can be a tremendous place for kids to interact with each other and to learn new things and to explore you know, these worlds and build creatively. But on the other hand, it can be extremely engaging, so much so that it's hard to put down and go outside and do something else. And so, in this one experience, you have some great things and you have some really challenging things. And I think it's really hard for parents, and me included, to navigate that when I know that there can be good aspects of these technologies. But I have to put some really firm guardrails around them so that it doesn't, you know, s- slip into just too much or into toxic territory, which can so easily happen. Same thing with social media. You know, they're, they can be portals to real connection, to learning new things, whether it's cooking or music or all sorts of things, acts, you know, you know, sharing your talents with the world, and that can be extremely empowering for young people. But at the same time, there can be, and there are examples of just real nasty things on social media and really toxic environments, negative feedback that youth can receive. Also, just even if they're not posting themselves, but just looking at images online and feeling that they don't measure up to the attractive images that they see. Now, some teens can just take that in stride and they tell themselves, eh, You know, I know that those images are very filtered and they're probably that person took 50 pictures to arrive at that one good one. And some teens can can really put that in context. Other teens, not so much, and they need more support around framing what's what they're seeing online. And so again, you've got the good and the bad in this platform, this one single platform, but you've also got different kids coming and interpreting what they're seeing in different ways, which can also be really challenging.
0: If you were to... (laughs) I know this is going to be kind of a complicated question. if you could be the designer of technology for children and teens, what would you make sure that it encompassed what would you include what would you make sure was included in the design and development of technology?
1: Oh well, there are a lot, and actually in the book in the last chapter, I do present a framework, a child-centered design framework, where I, I kind of say, okay, designers, this is what you should focus on when you're designing technologies. But just to name a couple of, I think, really important things, if I were the one designing technology, one, I would limit dark patterns as much as possible. And include you. You mentioned this earlier. I would include as many loose parts as possible. And so the idea of loose parts actually comes from an architecture, or I believe it's a sculpture professor, Simon Nicholson, who talked about the important role that loose parts play in children's development. And so loose parts are things like sticks or pebbles or even paper clips. It's anything where you can. Kind of use your imagination to turn that thing into something else. And so in the pandemic, um, I'm sure, um, like other families, uh, we had a lot more cardboard boxes than we did before because we were ordering a lot more on Amazon. And my son Oliver loved using those cardboard boxes as loose parts to create forts and to create little dens for his stuffies. And he created a TV because I wouldn't let him watch TV one afternoon. And so, you know, that's, I think, a great example of using materials in many different ways. And so it does transfer this concept, it transfers into the digital realm where you can have open ended experiences where kids can create new things so actually oliver has a few painting or art apps on his tablet where he opens them up and the first thing that he sees is a blank page rather than you know instructions for what he's supposed to do he just sees a blank canvas he can choose what drawing implement or painting implement he wants he can choose the colors and all of these are a form of digital loose part where he's deciding what he wants to put on this page and how long he wants to do it for. And so as much as possible, I think, especially designers of technologies for younger kids, the more they can include these loose parts, I think the better because kids have an opportunity to use their own imaginations, their own creativity, which is such an important part of play. And play itself. plays such an important role in early child development. So, Those I think are really important. I also think that you know a lot of the work that I do is design focused, and you know we are in our lab envisioning new technologies. One area is we're trying to envision better social media experiences for teens. And when we do this research, we actually involve youth and their families directly in the design process. And I know that more technology companies are doing this, but I think really understanding kids' experiences and their and their context of how they're using technology is really important, not just the family context but the surrounding cultural context, and how this technology is likely to be taken up by specific kids in their particular context I think is really important and something where involving kids and their families in the design in an active way, not just as users who are testing a technology, but really actively and meaningfully involving them, I think is a great way to figure out if this technology is going to be used in a way that you hoped it would be used. And then also really important, I really wish that every designer of kids' technologies took at least one course in child development to really understand where kids are at different ages and stages of their development. You know, what can they do? What can't they do? What are they interested in? What are they not? You know, many designers, to be fair, are expert in children's development, but I don't believe it's a requirement for most design jobs, but I really wish that it were.
0: Now, I would love for you to talk about how your research group developed the Locus app because you just mentioned, you know, with teens and just making sure that how they're using social media and and just their phones in general is just more putting more thought into it and trying to put the control back onto them. Can you explain a little bit about about that app and how it works?
1: Sure. So, a lot of in my research in the last, I would say, well, maybe even the last 20 years, but especially in the last five years, when we have been speaking with teens about their social media uses and experiences, a lot of times we hear them saying the same phrase that they go on social media and they find themselves just mindlessly scrolling. So, this concept of mindless scrolling through their social media feeds, and how it makes them feel just like they've wasted their time or they get sucked into a rabbit hole. This is by no means unique to teens, but I focus on teens in my research, and I've been hearing this a lot. And we conducted one study where we actually tracked teens over a period of two months, and we actually found a relationship between when teens were going through and mindlessly scrolling and kind of not really engaging in meaningful social media experiences. And a connection to their decreased subjective well being. So, on the days where they were doing quite a lot of mindless scrolling, those were the same days where they weren't really feeling particularly good. And, you know, there's a complex relationship there where sometimes you're not feeling great. So, you just kind of go on your phone, but the reverse is also true. And so, we were inspired by these findings to figure out, well, could we? could we break that cycle in some way of this mindless scrolling and, and try to reorient teens' social media experiences towards meaningful use rather than habitual use? So we were trying to use design to, to reorient the experience. And what we did was we developed this app called Locus, where it's it, it serves as an entry into different social media platforms. And so what we do is it, we, if you have the app on your phone, you open the app and then that will take you to TikTok or Instagram. And, and by doing that, we can control how teens enter into a particular platform. And what we do is we just get them to pause for a moment and read a reflective question about their intentions. So we'll ask questions like, what are you hoping to get out of your time with Instagram? And they can answer it. They can voice record their response, or they can type it in, or they can just dismiss it. But we find that even when teens dismiss the question, they still have paused and considered it before they go in and actually use the app. And just that subtle reorientation can have quite dramatic effects on the experience that they go on to have, and there are other apps that are on you know the on the market that do something similar, and I think there it really shows a lot of promise and I would love for this type of thing to be incorporated into the actual platform so that we don't have to overlay something else on top but just you know just to just this pause and consider what are your intentions, how long do you think you're going to use, or how long do you want to use this app for? You know, it can be far more effective than setting a, you know, a timer or using a, one of those blocking software where, you know, there's a lot of research showing that those blocking apps don't really work because people override them so easily. So, yeah, that's, that's what we're trying to do in our research now is just figuring out how can we just tinker with the design of social media to make it a better experience for teens.
0: Now, I feel like, I mean, you could even use that as an adult, right? I oh, mean, absolutely. Yeah. Well, so
1: we our group, we were using it alongside the teens and I, and I was really, I actually, I've done enough research on social media that I don't like to actually use it that much in my own time, but I was finding that it was quite helpful as an adult as well.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I love that you mentioned that. It kind of just gives you pause and makes you think a little bit and- I, when I was still on social media, gosh, almost two years ago, I would take all these little breaks. So before I had deleted it completely, I would take, you know, two months off here, a month off here, a week off here to reset everything, you know, and I remember when I would go back on after being away for however long it was, I would always make it a point to put the Instagram icon on maybe, you know, the third page of, you know, my phone where I'd have to scroll through it. Or I just didn't even have the icon on my phone and I would have to go to the search bar and type in Instagram. And just that little extra step would make me be like, wait, why am I going on? What is my, what is my purpose in doing this right now? It's crazy though. It like, We're so wired to just pick up the phone and your finger will float to exactly where that app typically is and just open it without even thinking and just start, and then you just get sucked in right away, right? It's just like this immediate. And if you have to do that one little extra step, so yeah, I find that that, I mean, I can imagine that that's really helpful and kids really benefit from it because it's almost a rewiring of the brain, right? You're rewiring to think, okay, I know I'm going to get a question about what I'm doing on here. Okay. I'm really going to think about what I'm doing on here. And especially in, in a preteen teen brain where it's not completely fully developed as far as like emotional and social skills and all of that. And it just gives them kind of like that extra skill that they might need to assess, you know, what am I actually doing
1: right now absolutely yeah. yeah and if you think about how hard it is for us as adults to to really manage our social media use or just any anything on our phones it's that much harder for teens because they're still developing their executive function skills and so they aren't as good as we are and we're not particularly good all the time at really you know managing our time use and making sure that we balance what we're Doing online. And it's that can be really tricky for teens who's because their prefort, prefrontal cortex is still developing. And add that their emotional responses tend to be heightened because social development is happening really quickly and rapidly. And, you know, of course, social media is all about those emotional reactions and social engagement. And so it can be quite a challenging mix when you bring those two things together. Yeah. I mean, from a,
0: personal perspective, I found it nearly impossible to to manage my own social media use, which was why I deleted it. And again, everyone is different. Like you said, every child and every teen will be different when it comes to how you as the parent might need to step in with their digital media use, right? And as an adult, I was able to recognize, you know, this, this isn't for me. I'm, I've i tried many times to try to, you know, fiddle around with this and make boundaries and it just sucks me in every time and I end up in the same place and it's just not worth it to me anymore. And there were so many other things in my life that I wanted to concentrate on, you know, raising children, being the utmost important thing that I needed to do. And it just, there was no role for me anymore. And, you know, I, as an adult, I was able to recognize that. Now, as a teen, (laughs) that would be, have been impossible for me. You know, you think back to when you were in high school, right? I mean, the only things you care about (laughs) is like, you know, who are you sitting with at lunch? What are you doing this weekend? and social media is such a big part of that now where as you said there's there's a lot of emotional and social skills that have to be part of you know a child using social media and understanding what's going on on there and you feel like you're left out, you know, like if you're not using it and feeling left out is probably one of the worst feelings, right? To anyone, right? Like that's like one of the worst feelings.
1: Yeah. For everybody. But I would say, especially for teens. And I think this, you raise a really important point around just the stakes associated with social media for many teens, not all of them, but a lot of them. This is a really important context of their social development and their identity development. And those two things are kind of the job of adolescence is to figure out who you are, who your friends are, how you're going to engage with the world in a social way. And, And those developmental tasks are every part, every bit as important as our jobs as adults, you know, and, and often adults will look at teens and what they're doing on social media and readily dismiss it as, oh, you're just you know posting selfies or you're just interacting with your friends. But actually, those things are really important things that teens are doing and trying to figure out and navigate. That's their job right now is developmentally to figure out who they are. And so taking that seriously, I think, is one really important step for parents to do when, especially when they start to engage their teen children in conversations around social media, is to start from a place of taking it absolutely seriously, recognizing that the stakes are very high for them, and really empathizing with the struggle around just you know, navigating this very complex social territory.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think or what do you hope will happen with legislation surrounding digital media. Do you – what are your thoughts completely? Like what do you hope will be established and do you think we will see that happen in the next few years? Like what are your
1: thoughts Oof. on that? I know I'm – oh, yeah. so No, I know. Well, so, the, you know, I think there has – you know if we set aside the us for a moment there has been actually quite a lot of legislation in other parts of the world so that actually i think has led already to some pretty positive changes so a couple of years ago the uk passed their age appropriate design code and before that passed or right around when it passed many of the companies like tiktok and youtube and meta they actually made some concrete changes to their platform. so YouTube disabled autoplay for under so for child, children's accounts under age eighteen. TikTok in, introduced take a break nudges and, and things like that. So some really positive changes that are I think you can draw a direct line to that legislation. The U.S. has been a lot slower, especially on the federal level. We're still waiting for legislation to be passed. There's been some introduced. What concerns me is that in the meantime, you have a lot of different legislation being passed on the state level. and It doesn't, it's kind of a mishmash. So California passed a piece of legislation that is, it was designed similarly to the UK's age appropriate design code. And I think that's great, but it's just California. And then you've got other states where it's actually quite punitive, you know, just trying to bar teens altogether from social media, or which something that I find a little bit more concerning is putting all the burden on parents to decide whether or not their teens can have access to social media. And so I would almost prefer, you know, legislation to set an age of social media use rather than have par- parents figure this out because that can be really fraught in a family context. So I think what I hope to see and continue to see is legislation passed, which really puts the onus on the tech companies and designers of technology to put guardrails on, to design for well-being rather than attention, forefront in the mind, and to really try and make their products as safe and and supportive of children's development as possible. And I would ideally like to see legislation avoided that puts all of the onus on the family because so much falls on the family to figure out, you know, you've got these societal level problems that are introduced and then tip and whether or not that has to do with technology or not. And then typically it's on the families to figure out how they're going to navigate that. And I think it's just a, a big burden for families to shoulder. Two things. So, I love that you mentioned
0: that because I feel like this doesn't even have to do with just the topic we're talking about, but whenever you put yourself versus your child and think about it in that context versus us, so my child and I against a problem, you're always going to do better when it's putting you and your child against a problem versus you making a rule up for your child. And now they are seeing you as this enemy. And I feel like, you know, if we were to just establish these age, you know, appropriate levels for children to use certain apps, then, you know, it's just, this is how it is. The rule for this is this age. You know, we, I didn't, I didn't create it. This is just how it is. And it's you and your child against the problem, which is the problem of, okay, you can't use this app until you're 13 or 14 or what have you, is just going to be much better overall because whenever you kind of have to pin yourself up against your child and you're making that rule when we already have like, 100 million rules to make for our children. (laughs) Like, Please don't put another thing on me. I I would like for something to just be in place. Okay. Like, please Mm -hmm. make things easier for me as a parent. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, of course, children are going to find loopholes and ways around things and you will have to navigate that. But at least you can know that it can be you both against, you know, whatever their whatever they think the problem might be, you know, such that they can't use something until they're a certain age. Is there any legislation that's currently in the works that you would love to see go
1: through? Well, actually, yes. I have I was asked to support a piece of legislation on the federal level. It's called the Detour Act and it's sponsored by Senator Warner and I think this is a really promising piece of legislation because it, it addresses dark patterns specifically and really trying to get companies to eliminate or at least minimize the use of dark patterns in a way that can really focus on well-being and safety and privacy of children and so i think this this particular piece of legislation has a lot of promise and so hopefully it'll it'll make it through but you know It's really hard at the federal level to get these bills passed. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, (laughs) is there anything that we can do as parents to help support specific legislation like the Detour Act to follow through? Like, is there anything we can do?
1: Yeah, I think always parents, citizens have a role to play where they can contact their senators and and really say, "I want this legislation debated and passed." and showing that their constituents care about this, I think can go a long way. So I think that's really important. I think, you
0: know, one of the hardest things, especially for me, is understanding how legislation is passed. (laughs) So where does the Detour Act start? and, And what are the next steps for it? Just for an example.
1: Yeah, that is a great question. I am not a policy wonk. So I don't know the exact (laughs) steps for this act. I do know that it's starting in the Senate. So this is Senator Warner. And so it's going to be introduced there. Mm -hmm. So I think pressuring senators at in the first pass where it goes from there I am not sure
0: (laughs) yeah it's I think that's can be the hardest part right it's like Mm -hmm. okay I understand step one Uh, we should all be contacting our senators and saying we really want to see this go through and you know for reasons x y and z and it's a simple email I you know honestly I will probably I can actually like you know sketch something up and put it into the show notes. And you guys could just copy and paste it and literally send it to your senator. It's super easy. It doesn't need to be anything intense. Or you could just call. But then it's like, well, where does it go from there? (laughs) Who knows? It goes to space. I don't know. Maybe that's another podcast for another time, just educating on, you know policy and how it how it gets through our our united states branches of government i have no idea it's so confusing to me i always used to go to sharon mcmahon for all of those things <laughs> sharon says so on instagram and she's still like in my contacts so whenever i have a like an intense question i'm like sharon sharon you need to help me with this i have no idea what's going on she also has this this governor's it's like a from what i understand i've never taken it but it's like a class of like what is our government and how it works for adults, which I think is pretty. Oh, that cool. sounds really yeah. yeah. No, that sounds yeah, it's very kind useful. of genius. One of the last questions I wanted to ask you is what are your go-to apps for Oliver right now at his
1: age? Oh, that is a good question. So well right now we we live in Seattle. Oliver and I were living in Berlin for four years. And so Oliver was quite fluent in German when we left. However, now that we're in Seattle, he refuses to speak German with me because he doesn't feel that I, my German skills are quite up to snuff. And so I have this kind of, it's like the PBS equivalent for accessing German television. And so it's this app that I use on his tablet. And so we have a rule at home where for every English television show he watches, he has to watch A German show. And this has just become, you know, part of what we do every day. And so that's, you know, one way to keep up his language skills in a way that is entertaining for him. Uh, So that's that. I love Khan Kids. So Khan Academy Kids. And he really likes that too. That's probably our. Main go to educational app on his tablet. And then as he's been getting older, he has started to really show an interest in drawing. And so, and he also really, really loves Pokemon. And so, we have found some drawing tutorials on YouTube that teach him how to draw Pokemon. And so, he's really into those. And so, that's sort of one where I really have to carefully supervised because when you're on YouTube, you just never know what yeah, you're going to find. the endless or, clicking. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you can very quickly get into dangerous territory on YouTube. Yeah. Um, so I very carefully make sure that we're just sticking with these art tutorials. And yeah, no, I think so. You know, I really try and go with Oliver's interests and mm-hmm. try and take it from there and lead with his interests. It's kind of like, you know, how you parent outside of technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah just what 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 really gets your child interested and excited and you know can you find something like that on online and chances are you can
0: <laughs> yeah i actually i'm going to try to put it into the show notes i have to find it but during the pandemic my kids loved there was this this woman who had these art classes online and it was super cheap. I think it was like $10 for all your kids to take this, you know, painting or drawing class. And I believe she had the videos up onto YouTube or it might've just been her own platform, but nonetheless, it was cool because you're, you're taking this art class, you know, virtually as opposed to having to, you know, get in the car and drive somewhere. It might be far. So I really, really liked that, but I am, Yeah, I'm I'm now in this camp of, you know, I don't think I need to limit the iPad use to once a year. I think that's probably a little bit cuckoo bananas. And, you know, like you said, tailoring, you know, what you think your kid might like. Like I have one child who's really, really into art. And then I have another child who's really into, you know, dress up and play. And and I know there was an app when we traveled last year, it was, you know, you had this blank slate of a a person. And you got to, you know, make their hair and skin color and all these things. You could do all of it, you know, like you said, it's almost like like digital loose parts. And I really liked it because it was, you know, like this dress up and that's totally her her thing. But it was in a way that I felt like she was able to control, have, you know, the autonomy and the control over the app itself. And there wasn't anything fancy going on and and, you know, things bouncing off the screen and things like that. It was very just open-ended. So yeah, I love that. Okay, before I dive into the two questions unrelated to the to the topic today, is there anything you would like to cover that we didn't already talk about?
1: Well, there's one concept that I introduce in the book that I really want parents to pay attention to, and this is the idea of the good enough digital parent. And I think it's so important because there is so much pressure around parenting in the 21st century there's even a name for it intensive parenting you know that we just were as parents were expected to set our kids up for success and introduce them to the best enriching experiences outside of school and then this we're supposed to know exactly what kinds of digital experiences to introduce them to and to keep them away from. And so I talk about the good enough digital parent as as sort of an antidote to that. And the idea comes from actually the middle of the 20th century, a pediatrician named Donald Winnicott wrote about the good enough mother. And he you know, focusing on mothers because I guess he felt that fathers were, you know, not really that involved, I guess, by definition, good enough for just showing up occasionally. But I update it for the 21st century, the good enough parent. And Winnicott really said that, the job of a parent is not necessarily, and actually, it shouldn't be to be there for your kid 100% of the time to fulfill their every need, to help them get out of tricky situations or to solve problems. And because if you do that, if you're always there, they're going to start looking to you more rather than inside themselves. And that's going to keep them from building really important resilience. And so it really is the job of the parent to not be there 100% of the time, to let their kids make mistakes. And so if we transfer this idea to the digital realm and think about the good enough digital parent, well, this is a parent who's doing their best to steer their child toward self-directed, community-supported digital experiences as much as they can, but knowing that they're not going to do this perfectly all the time. They're going to make mistakes. That's okay. The research will change slightly. The technology will change. We'll learn new things. But importantly, they're paying attention and they'll adjust as needed and learn from whatever mistakes are made. And that's absolutely fine. The good enough digital parent also recognizes that with their own Technology use, they're also going to have slip ups. There'll be times when they're distracted around their kids when they're looking at their phone. And obviously, we want to minimize the number of times that happens. But when it does, as it probably inevitably will, giving yourself a little bit of grace and recognizing that these things were designed to capture not just our kids' attention, but our attention as well. And when you find yourself slipping up, what I try and do as a parent is I try to shift that into a teachable moment and try and explain to Oliver, you know what? I've just been totally distracted by my phone. Why don't I set this aside and we will... carry on with what we were doing. And so in that way, good enough digital parents, they're doing their best, but they're also giving themselves room for mistakes and learning from their mistakes
0: i i love that you mentioned that because i i do feel that kids learn even more from a parent who does that and is on their phone and then talks to their child about it afterwards saying you know I'm so sorry you know I was checking this and I shouldn't be doing that right now and sometimes you know I just grab it and and I don't even realize it they'll get more out of that than they will with a parent who's just never on their phone it's never introduced and it's ne- it's never you know a problem right because you're child is recognizing oh oh and so when i pick up my phone and i'm you know in a conversation with someone maybe i shouldn't be doing that like that's probably not the best time to be doing something like that right you're you're teaching them through what you're doing and yeah it's 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 definitely a, a mindset change where you don't have to be this perfect parent all the time your parent your kids will benefit more when you're not honestly like that's how i feel personally you know it's the same same goes for if i'm raising my voice at my kids i address it right? Whether it's right then or even an hour or two later where I just say, I'm sorry, you know, that probably didn't feel really great when I raised my voice earlier. I shouldn't be doing that. And I could have done it this way. And, you know, sometimes we do things and we don't mean to, you know, and they recognize, oh, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Versus, you know, a parent who's always just like calm and never raises their voice and, you know, they don't experience that. But they're learning, you know, how to apologize and how to address situations and how to act. And they're just, yeah, I think there's so much more to be said from a parent who's able to, who makes mistakes, but then owns them and is able to have a conversation with their kids about them. I think, yeah, it's like hugely beneficial for them.
1: So. Absolutely. I would say for teens as well, you know, this can be a really great place to connect with your teen around mm-hmm. their phone use and whatever struggles they have. And they can see, you know what? Oh, my parent actually, maybe it might look a little bit different, but actually they're struggling in a similar way mm-hmm. to me. And that can actually be a really great basis for genuine conversation.
0: Yeah. And a bonding type of Yeah, you know, absolutely. Situation. yeah. Yeah. All right, so we are going to end with two questions I ask everybody I have on. So the first question is: If you could give one piece of advice for
1: moms, what would it be? Oh, (laughs) to not be so hard on themselves. I think. I think it goes back to the good enough digital parent is that you're just. There's just so much pressure and so much guilt. That's just what I. I feel like ever since I became a parent, I've just been feeling so much guilt that I'm messing it up in some way. And so I think for, for moms, I would just say, be kind to yourself and give yourself grace. And when it comes to technology use, there there isn't one prescribed way, you know, and I can confidently say, you know, I know the research and there is no one way to do this. It necessarily is going to be different from child to child and from family to family. And as long as you're thinking about keeping these questions, is it self-directed? Is it community supported front and center? You're going to probably be making some pretty good decisions. Yes.
0: And then the second question is, if you could make one dinner for your family that everyone would eat
1: that's relatively quick and easy, what would it be? Oh, my gosh. Okay. So Oliver is just the pickiest eater you can imagine. So this really, I can imagine. Narrows, really narrows things down. But one thing he will eat is pizza. So and so and actually my friend recently gave me one of her old pizza stones. And so I did make pizza once and he actually ate it. It was only cheese pizza, but still I feel like we're moving in the right direction. And pizza' is good because you know, it's very versatile. You can do half mm-hmm. just cheese and half other toppings. But yeah, unfortunately with Oliver, there there are very limited options here.
0: I do feel too, when you have the child involved in the making of the pizza, that they're more likely to eat it. Oh yeah. Like whenever I've involved one, well, two, well, honestly, three of our kids have issues eating right now. (laughs) Three out of four, (laughs) you know, it just depends on the night, I guess. But whenever I've involved them, you know, with the making of the meal or in simply the putting together of the meal afterwards. So if like I separate all of the different things, so if I'm making, you know, if it's tacos or whatever, you have everything separate when they have that full control, it's like a game changer. So obviously that's not possible for every meal. I, I honestly, I usually just with, with four kids, I just make the meal. If they eat it, it. if they don't, they don't. It's just, you know, I don't even harp on it anymore. I'm just like, you know, I just eat, And my husband eats and we just, you know, that's it. But yeah, whenever they have a chance to kind of get hands on with it, I feel like it always ends better than if they don't.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I agree. And pizza is actually a really good one for kids to be involved in. Yeah. Actually kind of fun to get like little personal like
0: dough yes. and then they can just do whatever they want with it. Right. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, I, I remember as a kid, I, one of my favorite birthday parties, I remember once we got to make our own individual pizzas, I thought that was the best thing ever. So yes. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Pizza Friday nights.
0: Well, thank you so much, Katie, for taking the time out of your day to talk to us about technology. I really appreciate you. Well, thank you so much. This was fun. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today.